The Hartman Company's Golden Age products are at it again with more new products. You heard that correctly, even more new products. The company that brought you a first class hair cream, hair tonics, and aftershave lotion. The same Hartmans who teamed up with One Round Jack to bring you a classic pomade. Then joined forces with Jacob Evans of Let's Talk Pomade podcast to create an original clay pomade. While they're back at it with their newest product, Rascal's Brilliantine. I had our consigliere try out their initial trial batch, and guess what? It gave him that classic good-looking shine. Even I wanted to kiss him. So if you go to the HartmanCompany.com site, you can pre-order this and all of their fabulous products. And don't forget, folks, with Hanukkah and Christmas right around the corner, you don't want to get caught looking like a slouch. And the HartmanCompany.com and their Golden Age products will assure you don't. So go to the HartmanCompany.com site and put in your code word GANGSTER to garner an additional 10% off of your purchase. That's the HartmanCompany.com with two N's, bringing you the newest in old fashion. Go there today. Warning. The show is intended for mature audiences. Parental discretion is advised. Welcome to the History of Organized Crime. I'm your host, Michael Vista. This episode, Singing Sam, The Combine, and The Funnel. Now, before we get into our narrative, I got an email from Susie in Edmonton. She asked, You've mentioned the docks and longshoremen, but why was it such a problem? How were they able to assist in organized crime? That sounds a little far-fetched. Well, Susie, thank you. That is a good subject that needs a little examination. Before 1956, every item of cargo had to be loaded manually. So, if, say, 67 tons or 134,000 pounds of cargo needed to be loaded onto a ship for transport, it could literally take dozens of men working two shifts a week to load the cargo on one vessel. Every sack of grain needs to be moved manually, sometimes in a chain of men, sometimes using open lifts, which still need three people minimum to operate. When they loaded objects such as cars, boilers, machinery of various sorts, it all gets lifted via crane and heavy-duty cables. That's an operator, a spotter right next to him, at least three people to the area it is going to occupy and untie the object once it's in place. Back then, it didn't even need to be perfectly placed either because they would just jam all sorts of items also being shipped between other large objects so they could buffer themselves for the journey. Hence, if there was a series of cars being shipped, quite often they were filled and surrounded on the sides and underneath with other items for the journey. Now let us assume we are shipping illicit product from overseas to the United States, like heroin from Turkey via Sicily or Marseilles in France in 1920. You have so many people working the docks that it is near impossible for the authorities to catch much of anything. So... They slip the illegal product into marked packages and load them onto the ship. They then wire the info to a select city overseas, such as Newark, New Jersey, where it is garnered by a Morello crime figure, Willie Moretti. Moretti then gives that information to a powerful associate of the family, such as Frank Costello. Frank can't be a member of the Fertuzzi, since he isn't Sicilian, but a Calabrian. So he isn't as suspected by those within the Secret Service or the New York Police Department, with some working knowledge of this organization. 
Costello gets that information to Paul Kelly, who arranges pickup and informs those who need to know in the Union Siciliana, and they kick it up to Tammany Hall. So Tammany is handling the legal side of things, such as detectives, politicians, and union leaders. The supervisors and workers are all chosen, and transportation is handled. Even if they aren't keeping the freight, just lightening the load, then sending it on, they still got their shipment. Understand, too, that just because you are aware a shipment is coming in, doesn't mean you know what the shipment is. By the way, here's a $1,000 donation to your campaign fund. Here's a couple hundred for your kid's birthday. In addition, the stealing of freight was much more prevalent then than it is now. Assuming you have the skinny on valuable products coming over and on what ship, if you control the Longshoremen's Union, you can decide who is going to supervise the unloading of freight. This is what Paolo Vaccarelli, a.k.a. Paul Kelly, did when he went into semi-retirement as the head of the Five Points Gang. They, in turn, will have their hand-selected guys keep an eye out for said freight, so it can be intercepted and diverted to a new destination. Back in the day, if there was a lot of heat and management oversight, because so much freight went missing, the Longshoremen's Union would go on strike and nothing would get loaded or unloaded. So whatever cargo went missing was written off and the insurance company had to cover the loss. Which means the cost of insurance goes up for the owners of the docks and the ships. Which in turn drives the cost of goods up in the transportation side of the fence. Which means the cost of all goods for the average person goes up and no one knows why. Now, we will cover this some more when World War II comes along, as the United States government went and arranged with La Cosa Nostra to keep the cost of shipping down and to stop the stealing of any freight. Regardless, the entire world turned upside down for the longshoremen in 1956 with a successful voyage of the SS Ideal X. This ship, while not the first, was a refitted oil tanker constructed during World War II. Malcolm P. McLean, had the idea of loading trucks and their containers onto ships, so as to keep the goods intact, and then they could just unload the two together and drive the goods where they needed to go, cutting time in the offloading of cargo and keeping thieves from taking their goods. Unfortunately, due to the trucks, this would create a bunch of unused storage space that the professionals called broken stowage. So McLean modified his concept to just shipping the containers. In April of 1956, the SS Ideal X sailed from the docks of Newark, New Jersey with 58 containers to Port of Houston, Texas. When the ship docked, there were 58 trucks waiting to get loaded with containers and driven to their destinations. It took less than a day versus the normal week of unloading by hand. Malcolm P. McLean's containerization plan worked, and within a decade, the world had changed. Most shipping containers today are based on his model, and are standardized in size, most of them being 20-foot or 40-foot designs that can be carried by truck, rail, plane, or ships. McLean's containerization model also meant cargo could be loaded at the manufacturer's facility, where it would be manifested, locked, and given a numbered seal. A truck or train would pick it up, with the transportation personnel responsible to make sure the seals and locks were in place, as well as match the cargo manifest they had signed for from that point of origin. So every step of the way, inspections were quick and as long as everything matched up and the container hadn't been damaged, then the container could be loaded and sent on its way to its final destination. If a problem did occur between any of the multiple points with the freight, it made the investigation and catching of the perpetrators that much easier. 
This was a devastating blow to the longshoremen because it meant less men needed to work the ships. It also hurt the criminals who couldn't just go grab whatever they wanted and walk away. Hence, shipping costs have been kept low due to Mr. McLean's vision. Malcolm P. McLean passed away in May 2001 and to this day is the only person to have founded three companies that would eventually be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. I want to give a shout out to the YouTube channel Wendover Productions for pointing me in the right direction. Wendover Productions is a channel that gives you information on how things work and operate, whether it be the logistics of running an airline or how geography affects countries. Once I found the site, I must have watched eight videos in a row. More like 15, Dad. Watch your tone, young lady. Whatever, major loser. Hence, we need to scrap labor laws protecting children. So thank you, Susie, for asking me to explain something I should have covered in better detail and introducing me to Wendover Productions. Go check them out and tell them the Podfather sent you. Now on to the narrative. When we left Detroit, John Vitale had rightly earned his nickname, Bloody the murder of a member of the Fertuzzi after a piece that was made and sealed in blood in front of multiple witnesses of the Fertuzzi left a sour taste in many a mouth. It also meant, particularly with those with a more black-and-white view of the world, the younger members, that the so-called boss of the Motor City was without honor. The bloody coup of whacking Sam Gianola afterward did much to splinter the gang he led. The older members considered John Vitale ruthless, certainly, but also a businessman who had access to a thriving bootlegging business that was only going to get bigger, so they'd make even more money. The younger members considered this unprincipled in more ways than one. Giovanni Bloody John Vitale, in their point of view, had already won. He'd taken out Antonino Gianola already. His planning and intelligence had beaten the Gianola advantage of having experienced killers. Plus, young Sam Gianola had lost his two children in a house fire that was not considered to have been an act of the Vitali faction, as it went so extremely against the rules. Sam was a shell of himself and reasonably depressed. He made the peace and took a lesser position within the Detroit hierarchy. When he was gunned down outside the bank, Vitali was the first and only suspect, because any murder in Detroit had to be authorized by him. He couldn't blame it on the Jewish street gangs. They had a friendly arrangement with the Gianolas. He couldn't put the onus on the Irish, since almost every one of them had a legit job, many of them with the police. Their street gangs were few and powerless, so everyone who was of their circle knew it was on the orders of John Vitale. Even if it wasn't John Vitale and one of his men had gone rogue for personal reasons, Don Vitale would have been obligated to find out who it had been and discharge the appropriate justice. If it had been a killing of a personal nature, outside of everyday business and a non-member of the Fertuzzi, everyone would have been placated. Vitale did none of those things he needed to do to keep the peace, which is one of the responsibilities you have when you get to be the boss. The Gianola faction, which was being quietly led, once again by the eldest and last of the Gianola brothers, Gaetano, was in a bit of a bind. Most of his people were of the younger, more brash sort. He had people such as Angelo Polizzi, Bill Tolco, Angelo Mili, Joe Zarelli, Joe Manzello, and Leo Celloro. They were chomping at the bit for revenge. Salvatore Sam Gianola was more than their boss. He was their friend. 
Of these youths, Giuseppe Joe Manzello grabbed the mantle of street leader, a straw boss, if you will. He was one of Sam Gianola's most trusted gunners, confidants, and eventually, pallbearers. He was also inspirational, outspoken, and fearless. Joe Manzello let it be known quite early after the hit that he was not going to let dead dogs lie. You tell him I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Yes, he shut his pie trap in the beginning, because to not do so would be disrespectful to the deceased, the widow, and Gaetano. And while I'm sure Manzello liked Gaetano, he most probably doubted the man's ability to take action. Gaetano was more like Niccolo Shiro of the Castellamare clan in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, a boss balancing through logic and politics the more impulsive nature of the men around him. He didn't have the personality that exuded a more forceful nature. That just wasn't who Gaetano Gianola was. Post-funeral, however, Manzello and his crew are looking for answers in leveling threats because they want to know who killed their friend and no answers are coming from the so-called boss. And realize that these are more streetwise fellows. They've worked hand-in-hand -hand with Pietro Mirabelli and his crew of bootleggers, racketeers, and button men. They're known and probably friendly with Antonio Badalamonte, John Vitale's nephew and an up-and-comer as well. So the word was on the street and it was certainly getting back to the ear of Don Giovanni. Sweet. I love that opera. Anyway, on August 10th of 1920, Joe Manzello finally got the information on who killed his friend when he and the two Angelos, Polizzi and Melli, were standing on the street curb talking when a car came by and started riddling them with bullets. Manzello, the main target, got hit eight times. One bullet split his spine. Polizzi was hit multiple times as well. Melli was positioned well enough away to have been able to get cover as over 20 shots rang out in their direction. The car took off and both Manzella and Polizzi survived the initial onslaught. Both were taken to the hospital. That was it. No more placating patients. If Vitali wanted to shoot their friends, they were going to shoot his family. The next day, as he was setting up his grocery front, Antonio Badalamonte was gunned down by seven members of the Gianola crew, led by Giuseppe Joe Zarelli. Zarelli was not only friends, but shared boarding with Manzella and Polizzi. Not only had Vitali shot his friends, he was now going to have to cover their rent, and he was angry. After visiting their two friends, who boarded on death's door at the hospital, to let them know the good news, several of them, including Joe Zarelli, were arrested in connection with the murder. I am sure Vitali and his group figured by cutting off the heads of the leadership, they'd run out of leadership. They were mistaken. The Giannolas had always run fairly independent. They paid fair wages, were generous and loyal. The men who were tied to that faction chose to be there, and they were more of a family than most of the Black Hand Gangs of America, with a few exceptions. Regardless, Joe Manzella passed away a few days later. Polizzi would eventually recover from his wounds. Days after their arrest, the cops had to let them go for lack of evidence. And seven days after that, as bloody John Vitale, his wife, and their 17-year-old son Joe left the house, a slew of bullets rang out at them. They missed the boss and his wife, but young Joe didn't make it. Surrounded by cops and wise guys, the Vitales buried their son. The cops were all over the Eastside gang, with multiple arrests, 
only to be quickly released as some force moved heaven and earth to keep them from answering the questions of officials. Regardless, the police kept the pressure on the Sicilians for over a month after these spate of murders. They should have kept it going longer. After a Friday night out, waiting at a corner at 3 a.m. on October the 2nd, two cars drove by as Don Giovanni Vitali was shot down by three men. How do I know there were three men pulling triggers? Pistols only hold six rounds, and this was a hit and run. Within two months, John Vitali's widow had lost her nephew, a son, and now a husband, and she buried them all. By the fall of 1920, with the murderous hits of Joe Manzella and Bloody John Vitali, all sides were chafing at the continued violence and lack of leadership. Stepping into that vacuum was someone who walked the line between the older and younger gangsters and singing Sam Salvatore Catalanare. Though in his mid-twenties, Catalanare had made his name running booze with the Giannola faction in his youth and was known to be violent, but only in matters of business, and he was most judicious in its employment. In addition, he had also avoided getting killed on multiple occasions while moving product for the family he was aligned to. It was his mild temper and shrewd business acumen that caught the eye of Gaetano Giannola. Under Gaetano's tutelage, Sam Catalanate moved into the more political division of the gang and had been named as the Detroit president of the Union Siciliana. And before we move forward, he was not actually a singer or even alleged to be a canary. His last name is close to an Italian phrasing, Canta Lanate, which translates to singing in the night or songs of the night. So it was most likely a joke between friends and just kind of stuck. So while his voice may not be able to carry a tune, it did carry words of wisdom and profitability. By 1921, he was working to create a working, cohesive relationship that could make everyone money, but also maintain the peace. All I want is peace. 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 This was a tenuous affair, with much effort taken on Catalanate's part to maintain the ruffled feathers of the youngsters on the east side of Detroit and the seemingly disenfranchised older faction from the west side, being maintained by the Vitali stalwarts Cesar Chester Lamare and Pietro Mirabelli. Fighting was going to continue if an equitable peace could not be forged. Singing Sam was breaking his back, trying to cool tempers and hammer out arrangements on booze shipments coming across the river. The west side was in a questionable position being away from the Detroit River, garnering less access to monies and cargo compared to the East Side gang, who didn't want to give anything over. When things appeared to be heading south, Catalanade garnered a saving grace in the name of Gaspar Malazzo. Malazzo, like Catalanade, was from the Trapani province of Sicily, and both had strong personal ties to the Banano Magadino Bonventre organization. Malazzo brought with him not only a breadth of experience, but a heavy name and reputation to go with it. Malazzo was a member of the Good Killers, and they had killed at least three Bucciolato members in Detroit during their grand feud. It didn't make much news because everyone just chalked up the murders to the Giannola Vitale War. Plus, the investigation and trial of the Good Killers had made little news in the Detroit papers of the day. Salvatore Catalanate, Gaspar Malazzo, and Gaetano Giannola were able to create a peace and resurrect a working relationship for all the Sicilian gangs. This was known as the Pascuzzi Combine. Pascuzzi is derived from Pasqua or Pascula 
or some variation of Italian. That essentially means Easter, a time of resurrection and peace. Catalanate, with Malazzo as his consigliere, was able to reorganize the East Side gang under Angelo Melli. Melli was smart, level-headed, and obviously he could keep his wits about him since he was able to avoid getting shot while standing next to his friends. Melli would, with Catalanate's permission, make Black Bill Taco, Joseph Sorelli, and Leo Chalura his lieutenants. Together, they assisted and kept the peace when eventually the Licavoli brothers moved their operations from St. Louis, which garnered exotic liquors from the South, such as bourbon, rum, and tequila. They were able to get the unions, police, and political machines to work with them in keeping their products moving while cracking down on upstarts who weren't authorized to smuggle or distribute booze. This loose grouping would all fall under the purview of Singing Sam, and he would maintain the peace between Sicilians for nearly 10 years. 10 years of making money hand over fist as nearly 80% of all the booze that was imported into the United States would come directly over the Detroit River during the Prohibition era. The streamlined access of beer, vodka, brandy, as well as Canadian and Scotch whiskeys to the United States was known as the Funnel. Their corrupted sister city was in a place called Windsor, Ontario, in the country of Canada. Canada, which was going through its own phase of prohibition, which was left to each and every province to decide what was and how it would be prohibited, or if at all. Ontario's laws had more holes than a reused condom. Wineries got a pass. Distilleries could still make as much booze as they wanted as long as it was for the purpose of export only. So not even the police departments or the Royal Canadian Police in the province took the law seriously at all. And why would they? It was obvious the politicians weren't. Only Quebec, which enacted and quickly repealed their own law completely, were almost wholly wet, compared to all the other provinces. In Ontario, however, if one wanted to get a booze shipment, there was only one man to talk to, and that was Rocco Perry. And he didn't supply to just Detroit, but also to Buffalo and Rochester in New York State. In addition, when Gaspar Malazzo and Stefano Magadino wanted to meet in private, away from the eyes of the U.S. Secret Service or the Bureau of Investigation, the forerunner of the FBI, they'd meet in Ontario. Rocco Perry, though not a Sicilian, but rather a Calabrian, had garnered a solid reputation as a businessman who would employ violence only when necessary. He was fortunately wedged between two of the less violent gangster groups during the Prohibition era. Perry was more connected and handsome than smart. Though he didn't try to rip off his customers, there weren't hijackings that couldn't be accounted for, it was a well-oiled machine and he was the liaison man between the legitimate distilleries and illegal importers in the United States. Perry's biggest problem stemmed from his love life. In 1912, as he worked as a laborer for the Welland Canal, which is a canal connecting Lake Ontario and Lake Erie, he lived with a married couple, Harry and Besha Tobin, and their two daughters, renting a room. During this time, he began an affair with the unsatisfied Mrs. Tobin, and by 1913, she was pregnant, 
but Rocco had taken a new job and was forced to move away, and she abandoned her husband, daughters, and her Jewish faith to be with Perry. Unfortunately, the child was stillborn, yet they were a known commodity as Mr. and Mrs. Perry throughout Hamilton. Because of Perry, who had had a variety of day jobs, they moved into the seedier jobs that needed to be supplied to supplement his weak income. They ran a boarding house slash rental rooms where women of ill repute offered their wares, as well as low-level gambling games for laborers in their part of town. With the onset of prohibition in Canada, the world had seemingly become their oyster. Coupling her business sense and his contacts with companies with trucks and Italian toughs, they were able to start moving around illegally the entirety of Ontario. The bucks really started rolling in when, in the United States, Michigan jumped on the Prohibition bandwagon in 1918. One of the favorite ways to quickly move booze across the Detroit River, aside from blatantly driving across the river when it was frozen, was to exchange license tags. Let's say you have two trucks of identical make, model, and appearance. You go across the bridge from Detroit into Windsor, meet up with your friends, exchange trucks loaded with nothing for one loaded with hooch. The only thing one has to do is change out the license plating at the time, and the cops watching the bridge will note you haven't had time to load up with cargo. You weren't gone long enough, so they would let you buy. Eventually, the police got so corrupted, they were merely watching out for the outside competition while ignoring the shipments for the Sicilians and Jewish organization known as the Purple Gang. We'll cover them in detail later. As time went on, Ronco Perry and his common-law wife, Besha, had garnered much in the way of affluence and moved into an upscale neighborhood. They no longer had to keep borders to make ends meet, but there was a problem. Besha Perry, also known as Bessie, was not only bossy, she made it impossible to determine who was actually running the business. Excuse me, it's ma'am. It is ma'am. And she was stingy about everything, except herself. While she would parade around Ontario in the finest jewelry, furs, and silks, while paying the bare minimum to their employees. When one of their employees was killed in the actions of his duties, Rocco had promised the man's family that they would receive compensation, as one was supposed to in these relationships. She refused to give the man's family a loony. That's a Canadian dollar. Her greed was as sharp as her business acumen. While they were eating at the finest restaurants, their employees were living on pasta aioli. When they drank highly rated wines, their underlings were forced to quaff the leftover beers and whiskeys that were scraped off the bottom of the barrels. These men, who were putting their lives in danger on a daily basis while she sat on her ass, barking orders from inside her firelit office with servants attending her, were not happy. Rocco spent nearly as much time and his own money trying to maintain his employees' happiness as he did attempting to handle the day-to-day -day business. She also drove hard bargains with those they paid off to protect them from the authorities, the result being that they were less than enthusiastic to handle their end of the bargain. When Ontario changed their exporting laws in 1927, practically ending most of the monies the Perrys brought in, they changed their business model. They invested heavily into prostitution, drugs, the white slave trade, and the protection rackets. What didn't change was Basha Perry's heavy-handed tactics with these dangerous men. On August 13, 1930, just as she and Rocco were leaving their home, a shotgun blast rang out, killing Bessie. Her body protected Perry from getting hit at all. 
Some believe she was killed by members of her own gang. The police suspected she'd ripped off drug smugglers they'd been dealing with from Rochester. Her paramour, Rocco Perry, would become a shell of himself after her passing, and he would lose his businesses one by one because he didn't have the nose that Basia did for the handling of business. Regardless of her untimely death, the funnel would keep pouring illegal imported booze into the United States until the repeal of Prohibition. In addition, it gained a powerful market share in the U.S. liquor market, with Canadian whiskey still being quite prevalent even today. In our next episode, we'll be exploring the Cleveland organization run by Big Joe Leonardo, his relationship with Toto D'Aquila, and wondering if they can maintain power while external pressures are coming due to alternative powers of the day. You can find our show on SoundCloud and iTunes. Please leave us a review as it helps promote the show. You can visit us at the History of Organized Crime on Facebook. Or you can email us at michaelvista1970 at yahoo.com. Don't forget to put in the code word gangster when shopping at thehartmancompany.com to garner an additional 10% off your purchase. And remember, organized crime is only a crime because the government hates competition.